Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about how social interaction can benefit cancer patients. Oftentimes patients tend to bond because their cycles of treatment are consistent with other people. Uh, who may have similar types of uh, disease or dis-ease. Then we'll go over the basics of breastfeeding and what a lactation specialist can offer. We're trying to encourage the baby's um, natural reflexes, feeding reflexes, to find the breast and initiate breastfeeding by itself. And we'll explore what precision medicine is bringing to psychiatric care. We want to be more precise and uh, want to be able to um, personalize the treatment and uh, target uh, whatever an individual has as opposed to broadly treating their diagnostic label. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a nurse and lactation specialist talks about breastfeeding challenges and solutions. Then, a visiting psychiatry expert discusses how precision medicine is changing psychiatric care. But first, the medical director of integrative therapy at Upstate explains how social interaction can affect cancer patients' response to treatment. An interesting study was published recently about how social interactions can affect cancer patients' response to treatment. Here to talk about this concept is Dr. Koshal Nanavati, an assistant professor of family medicine and the medical director of integrative therapy at Upstate. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Amber. I appreciate it. So this study came from the National Human Genome Research Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health and the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. Researchers found that cancer patients were a little more likely to survive for five years or more after chemotherapy if they interacted during chemotherapy with other patients who also survived for five years or more and patients were a little more likely to die in less than five years after chemotherapy when they interacted during chemotherapy with those who died in less than five years. So what is this study really telling us? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, this is a seed for a further conversation in many ways. It's what we call a retrospective analysis. So they looked back. back at data over time and then drew some conclusions based on what they were looking for, searching for, kind of data mining within that. And so their real question was, is there a benefit to social interaction? And then really, uh, was there a difference between the type of social interaction, right? So uh, ultimately, great data would be data that's looking forward so that it's a directed type of a focus. Mm -hmm. um, so some of this is speculative. Um, and so uh, at the same time, I find it very intriguing and interesting that they actually address this topic because it's very important to talk about the fact that this journey of cancer oftentimes is felt to be a lonely one. Uh, and so the idea of feeling supported, having support, and then having support that's actually encouraging positivity versus an environment where you feel sadness, sorrow, distress, just being in that environment and the stress response that that can initiate in the body as well. It made me think about like a bike club where, I mean, some people will go bike riding on their own and some people will also bike ride with a club, and the idea being that you sort of, I don't know, do better or challenge yourself more when there's people around that are in that 
same mindset. Yeah, and that gets into kind of, you know, we talk about things like the herd mentality and the peer groups you keep and the impact that they have. So those studies have been done with children, they've been done with adults, in the work environment and socially as well. And then you think about on the broader scope, and again, because today's discussion is kind of fun in many ways with speculation, uh, think about things like geothermal interactions and electrodynamic and electromagnetic fields. And then you think about, you know, being around people who exude a positivity. You know, is their energy impacting us? And again, as I say this, I'm smiling because there are a lot of people in our listening audience who are going to jump on this and say that stuff is all hogwash. And the point is, we may not have all that information yet. These guys were also speculating based on what they saw in a database. But the question is, can we start from here and really get further in depth over time to recognize that there are certain things that may benefit or that, you know what, it's a nature type of a thing and that the nurturing component may not have as big an impact. You know, we don't know, uh, but it fascinates me. You know, and so people can't see us, but you and I are both smiling right now because this is the type of stuff that takes us beyond the known, outside the box, to really bring back and share new information with people as well. Well, this may be the first large-scale study that uh, looked at how social context in a treatment setting can play a significant role in the disease outcomes. So um, do you believe that the treatment setting, the place where you're receiving chemo or, or another treatment has an impact on how well the treatment works? Well, I, I think that makes a big difference for a lot of people just in terms of how they feel walking into that space, how they feel while they're there and when they leave, and the sense of calm uh, that environment can bring versus feeling like you're you know, in this chaotic zone where people are anxious, staff are anxious, there's a lot of hustle and bustle, uh, you kind of feel like you're off in the corner and nobody's really paying attention or caring for you and that other people are distressed and you really can't engage versus an environment like these guys looked at where they actually mapped out uh, proximity, right? And they did kind of a scattergram looking at how you were in relation to other people receiving treatment. And if you were in closer proximity, that seemed to show a greater social engagement. And that was their kind of extrapolation. Uh, but that seemed to have some positive correlation potentially, which is cool. Uh, and I think at Upstate we're trying to do that now more with the environment we're building with the new cancer center that has a soothing, calming, nurturing environment where our staff are able to engage patients to help them to feel comfortable. Uh, and oftentimes patients tend to bond because their cycles of treatment are consistent with other people. Uh, who may have similar types of uh, disease or dis-ease that they're actually working to relieve. Yeah, I've been up and um, seen that space, and it, it it's really set up really nicely in the healing garden. It looks out onto the healing garden. That's correct. Um, and they do have space for, for privacy if there's something that comes up that you know someone needs to kind of be off on their own for. But um, in large measure, there's it's a lot of open area. Well, there's a, there's a, uh, several points here, you know. So the one is social interaction. Are we talking about family? Are we talking about people who are suffering with or dealing with cancer at the same time? So a peer group of people going through the same or similar journey versus family support. And while the authors talk about the possibility of, you know, family support may have a potential better outcome, the reality is it depends on the individual their personal relationships, right. how they engage with peer groups. And so, again, this is such a unique uh, type of situation. And with most dis-ease, it's individual from the perspective of the person's life. And so trying to help them to find contentment 
healing when we can't always cure. Uh, these are important points as well, you know. So we think about stress and stress response and the fact that cortisol is something that actually goes up, right? So even just the thought of something that makes us anxious raises the cortisol in the body, right? That's the, the stress response. That's the stress response. Okay. And that triggers something called oxidative stress, which can then trigger cancerous change in the body as well. So using things like nutrition, eating healthy uh, foods that are going to be less caustic in the body, less inflammatory uh, potential in the gut, uh, physical activity and exercise, right? We even know that exposing yourself to green space, whether you're looking at a screensaver or green, greenery, uh, or you're actually out in nature or actually getting your hands in there, that actually has a benefit for reducing recurrence of cancers, especially breast cancer. Uh, then we think about the fact that when you stress about things you can't control, you're constantly in a state of stress and distress because you really can't change it and your mind is stuck there, right? Versus focusing on things you can control like creating a joyful moment, right? That's something that we can actively do. If we constantly fill our cup of life with that joy, suddenly that's the flavor of our cup, right? That's the flavor of our soup. Uh, and then mindfulness, we're teaching that to medical students now as well. Uh, and here I think our curriculum has actually leaped ahead of many environments because we've made a part of the cur curriculum for all students where they learn about mindfulness, the benefits of med meditation, and the fact that even a few minutes a day can lower cortisol, boost serotonin, melatonin. So serotonin, you think about Prozac and the antidepressant medications, helps with something called DHEA, which balances testosterone and estrogen, uh, helps boost dopamine, right? You can get doped up on breathing the right way, right? I mean, think about how we change a culture in this country if people knew that. If they could. Uh, that's and right. so the medical students are doing this themselves. That's right. And learning how to do it and learning the benefits. That's right. So. And the point is, at the end of the day, there's a science, there's an art, there's also simplicity, right? It's about breath. We all breathe. If we know how to breathe the right way, we actually get enhanced benefits. And if we breathe the wrong way, as we do when we're stressing, where we breathe shallow, we end up retaining carbon dioxide, which triggers anxiety, stress response, cortisol, and that whole cascade of events. So that fight or flight, norepinephrine, epinephrine, uh, really is something that we can tailor and control just by recognizing the moment uh, people talk about quantity of life. I want to live longer, right? How about we start focusing on quality of life, right? I want to live a more wholesome, fulfilled life where I have contentment and peace. And if I'm there, I'm no longer seeking because I'm not in distress. I'm at that place, right? And now every moment forward is bonus, right? So Good I tell point. my cancer patients that, you know, just because they have this diagnosis doesn't mean that um, you know, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow just as much as they're not. None of us know that for sure. But if we distress about the fact that I might not have a tomorrow, we're missing out on it today, right? And it sounds very simplistic, but when you live it, it shifts your thinking. And as I was mentioning, it shifts your biochemistry. So every cell in the body is healthier as a result. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati, the Medical Director of Integrative Therapy at Upstate. Well, let's talk more about the stress hormones. Um, if they're bad for people being treated for cancer, they're bad for everyone, right? That's correct. Um, how is the body's stress response supposed to work, and what happens when it's malfunctioning? And so I said that's correct, but let me take that back, right? So stress isn't all bad, right? Because stress can help us to concentrate better, focus better, to pay attention better. Okay. It can also help us to realize that, hey, I've got this moment. Let me make the most of it, right? 
Let me tell the ones I love that I love them. Let me close loops in my life that are unclosed, that are causing me distress. So that's not bad. It's when we stay in a state of stress, and specifically in focusing on things that we can't control, that's when stress starts to become negative. So I don't know that we necessarily say that all stress is bad, but stress for a brief time period, or stress that's focused to help us improve, right? Coal under stress becomes a diamond, right? And so it's not that it's all bad, but what we have to do is focus on how we channel it, how we deal with it, and then how we release it. Right? And that's where mindfulness comes into play. That's where regaining focus on the bigger picture in life. Uh, and then thinking about what's my purpose. Uh, thinking about what do I wish to contribute. When we start focusing in that way, then we start to live a more purposeful life as well. So if you let stress kind of get the best of you, and um, you may end up having medical headaches, um, weight gain, depression, anxiety, a lot of those uh, maladies have a root of, of stress, right? Correct. So um, you mentioned mindfulness, um, healthy diet probably plays a role too, or no? Absolutely. So I, I talk about this often, you know, the core four of wellness um, and the things that I've written about, the book that I've written in terms of nutrition, physical exercise, stress management, and spiritual wellness as being the roots um, and when you think about healthcare, think about the trunk of the tree as being disease prevention, the branches as disease management, the leaves as innovations, but the roots are really healthcare promotion, wellness promotion. And these are the fundamentals. We've known about it for thousands of years, but we tend to forget uh, and we get caught up in the moment. And that's where when we just take a deep breath to recenter, kind of interrupt the pattern, as one of my friends, David G., uh, likes to say. Um, you have the opportunity to then refocus and shift your focus. If you don't like the direction things are going in, take a deep breath, right? Just pause. And now you can shift direction if you want to or keep going if you like it. So as an integrative medicine specialist, um, do you prescribe things like meditation and yoga to your patients? Uh, every day. Actually. Every day. Uh, and, you know, depending on their physical health, their other health conditions, uh, yoga is also a physical practice. And so for some people, certain things are easier to do than others. Mm -hmm. But regardless, we're all breathing, right? Until we're not, we're all breathing. And so uh, I also like to tell people that, you know, we're living until the day we're not. And so live as if you're living, right? Not as if you're dying, right? And that means that we can always enhance uh, the environment we're in just by our presence, by our smile. In fact, even when you fake a smile, cortisol goes down, serotonin goes up. So, you know, I'd like to see more people as I walk around just smiling. And at least if they've heard this and they're smiling, then that's going to help heal their body naturally. So how do you define integrative medicine? Some people might not have heard of, heard of that. Yeah, what? so uh, people, a lot of people have heard of complementary and alternative medicine. Right. Uh, integrative medicine is conventional plus complementary medicine. So alternative is something that people often do instead of conventional care. Uh, complementary is uh, stuff that people do in conjunction with that's rooted in some degree of evidence. Uh, and what we know is that conventional Western medicine isn't all bad. And there are many, many great benefits of some of the therapies and treatments that we uh, tend to help people with, especially when they're acutely ill. Uh, things like surgery, things like certain medications that can benefit. Uh, but when it comes to chronic conditions, we don't have great cures or healing in conventional medicine, and that's where a lot of the complementary modalities, even some of the older systems like Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, and the fundamentals of the core four, nutrition, exercise, stress management, spiritual wellness, actually can help to heal 
and potentially reverse disease. I and mean, we know cruciferous vegetables can actually potentially reverse plaque and arteries. We don't really have medications that do that, and yet this food can actually benefit if we're consistent with eating it, right? It's phenomenal that this has been around for so long, and how many people actually know what cruciferous vegetables are, right? Broccoli, Le- leafy ca- greens. Yeah, right. broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, kale, spinach, Brussels sprouts, asparagus. Um, you know, that stuff actually is healing in the body, right? Now, not everyone can take all of it if they have certain health conditions. They have to be careful about the amounts. But the reality is that famous adage of let food be that medicine and let medicine be that food uh, really holds true, and we're coming back to it. Wow. Interesting. Well, getting back to cancer a little bit, um, doesn't a cancer diagnosis itself produce stress? It does. If I'm told told I have cancer, in fact, uh, last year my son um, had a little scare health-wise, and... Um, a mass was found, and initially the terminology was aggressive. And so you think about all these things, right? We thought uh-huh. about that too. It turned out not to be, uh, you know, thank goodness for him. Uh, but at the same time, when somebody mentions the word cancer, about 20 years ago, I think there was a lot more distress because we really didn't have as many therapies. We have a lot more options, and as we recognize that the word lifestyle plays a great role in the healing journey for a patient with cancer so that they feel that they're living with cancer and not dying with it. Um, and I actually like to go, and we're going to start a movement here, I believe, called Thrivership. So the idea of survivorship and survivorship groups is still tied to surviving the cancer. Thrivership is launching your life beyond, right? And so the point is, I get a label, that's fine. Now what do I do with this label? And more importantly, how do I optimize my quality of life now that I know I have this label, right? And that's what I try to help people with with our integrative oncology program. That's what Upstate is actually you know, putting a lot of energy in as well. Uh, not just for cancer, but in terms of how we help our community uh, understand healing uh, when cure isn't always possible. Oh, well, that's really neat. Thank yeah. you so much for being here and talking about this. My pleasure. My guest has been Dr. Koshal Nanavati, a doctor of family medicine and the medical director of integrative therapy at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Breastfeeding Challenges and Solutions on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Even when breastfeeding comes naturally, new parents may encounter problems and need the help of a lactation specialist. Here with me today is Anna Morochek, a nurse who is an international board certified lactation consultant. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Amber. Well, I've heard the campaign Breast is Best um, that urged new moms to breastfeed their babies. Is that still an ongoing effort? Yes, absolutely. We're hearing a lot of that um, uh, communication, and um, uh, sometimes I feel like the best is the breast is best um, message might be um, might be not the best way we can put it. Um, some moms um, 
um, feel like they are really looking for that bonding experience with um, with the baby, and that's more what they are drawn to breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know how important breastfeeding is. Um, uh, not breastfeeding, we know that statistically it increases increases the incidence of conditions like um, infections, cancers, diabetes, um, obesity for the baby. Also for moms, um, it can increase their risk for some um, cancers. Um, if they don't breastfeed? If they don't breastfeed, yes. Um, um, it's, it's almost like a fourth trimester of, of pregnancy where her body recovers and go back to this pre-pregnancy state. Um, yeah, I've always heard that it helped a woman lose her pregnancy weight as well. Right. So we put the weight during pregnancy and breastfeeding is our um, natural recovery for the, for the mom's body to um, get back to pre-pregnancy state. Um, And also, you know, I feel what's most amazing um, to me um, about breastfeeding that it really continuously changes the breast milk continuously change to meet the growing needs of the baby. We, probably would love for our baby to come in and tell us, you know, mom, I'm not feeling well, something is wrong. But actually it turns out through breastfeeding, through breastfeeding that can be um, accomplished. When the baby suckles on the mom's breast, some of their saliva is taken by the breast itself where that information is analyzed. And if the pathogen is detected in the breast milk, um, her body is going to um, manufacture the white blood cells specific to this pathogen to help clear that infection. So that's pretty amazing. That's um, really amazing. There's not a machine that does that. Right. That, that's the you human know you don't body have to nature. go to the doctor um, to get a prescription for any medication. Your body knows exactly what this baby needs. Um, we also um, discovered that um, the third component of um, component of breast milk, um, human oligosaccharides. Um, we were wondering for years, what is it doing in the breast milk? Why, why do we have those s- simple sugars um, in breast milk? Because we knew that the baby could not digest it. Hmm. So we put all this energy into producing this. What, it, what, what was it, it for? Um, and turns out that it's actually feeding the um, good bacteria in the baby's gut. So it's a food for the microorganism um, that live inside of the baby's belly, uh, baby's gut. So part of the baby's immune system? Yes. So it's actually helping to form the the immune system of the growing newborn and help them realize what belongs into the body and what does not. So it's totally beneficial for breastfeeding. Um, Is it the act of breastfeeding or the breast milk itself? Like if you, if you can't, for some reason, breastfeed, is getting the breast milk to the baby beneficial as it's well? It's absolutely okay. beneficial, but um, we need more research into really f- knowing exactly how um, how the bottle feeding breast milk and the breastfeeding itself um, differs and what are the um, consequences of, of um, bottle feeding breast milk, um, how different it is. But definitely um, um, there are moms who are going to... Um, we're not going to have the luxury of just um, breastfeeding. They have to go to work. They have to uh, be be away from the babies. And um, uh, them pumping milk um, is definitely very important and um, um, help improve their, their health. 
Okay. Well, you're part of the Family Birth Center at Upstate's Community Campus. Yes. Tell me about the uh, additions that you have, uh, the additional training that has happened recently with the nurses. Yes. So we trained all of our nurses um, on basic management and assessment of breastfeeding. So they are trained into assisting mothers with, um, with breastfeeding and making sure that the feedings that are happening are good quality feedings, that the moms are comfortable um, positioning the baby on the breast and having the baby um, feeding and making sure that they um, can assess how much milk the baby transferred during that feeding. Okay. All right. We also um, recently um, certify six new RNs as a certified lactation counselors. Um, they went through a week-long um, training where they um, learn in depth about breastfeeding physiology, uh, about um, um, assessment of breastfeeding, and um, they are able to assist um, moms. So if the IBCLC, so International Bird Certified Lactation Consultants, are not available. Um, they are the first line of defense um, when we have a mom who's struggling. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with nurse Anna Morocek about lactation support. So how often is it um, that a mom is struggling with breastfeeding? Does it, it doesn't nece- necessarily come naturally to everyone. It, there's some tricks of the trade, right? Right. Sometimes, especially in those early postpartum days, um, mom can feel like they're struggling. And sometimes um, it's a normal newborn behavior that they feel maybe are not um, how the baby should be acting. Maybe they're uh, sometimes they're, they're expecting the baby to be feeding um, every three hours and after that initial good feeding the baby gets into that sleepy phase and might be sleeping for 16 hours and what used to happen we used to tell moms you need to breastfeed every three hours um, where now we know that if the baby is not ready for that feeding he might not be um, she's going to get herself frustrated the baby's going to get frustrated and uh, the feeding is just not going to happen um, we know when we teach right now moms that the feeding on cue um, is really, really important. We want moms to understand the newborn behavior, um, to know when the feeding, um, when, when the baby is ready for the feeding. That's a lot to learn. For I mean, if you've never done it before, that's there's a lot of things to learn mm-hmm. about this. Well, um, just do you have trouble convincing mothers to try breastfeeding? Are there some women that just don't want to have anything to do with it? Um, there are some that um, uh, right from the get-go, they say that, no, they do not want to breastfeed. And um, that's usually the mom that we really need to get curious about and ask, the, ask her some open-ended questions and um, really learn more, more about their situation. Maybe um, this is a second-time mom who tried nursing the first baby and wasn't unsuccessful um, and maybe she did not have the support that she we might provide for this next baby uh, maybe she feels like she's gonna have to be at work in four weeks and does not realize um, that we can help that there are laws um, protecting her and encouraging her to um, continue breastfeeding um, even though she is going back to work so we're definitely those first four weeks would be beneficial 
in any event, right? Absolutely. Any breastfeeding is better than none. So even if she is going to do it for the first couple of weeks, it's going to um, benefit um, both mom and the baby. Well, let's talk about what are some of the common challenges that um, women might encounter and what are some of the solutions? Um, So many times what we see initially in the hospital is some difficulties with um, positioning properly baby to the breast. Um, There are some positions that are um, more difficult for moms um, early on. Um, And as the baby's learning, we want to encourage baby to be able to be more more and more independent on the feeding. Uh, we used to think that the mom has to do everything for the baby. Now uh, we're trying to encourage the baby's uh, natural reflexes, feeding reflexes, to find the breast and initiate breastfeeding on its um, by itself. Some moms also um, complain about nipple pain um, early on. That's a very common challenge for some of them, and um, that is many times... Um, result of the prop of the um, improper latch and um, uh, uh. positioning challenges so we definitely want to assess that also we have babies who maybe are born prematurely and needs to be separated from the moms um, in which case we want to make sure that this mom's uh, milk supply development is not influenced by the fact that they're separated so um, we're setting the mom with the pump and making sure that she's pumping in addition to uh, feedings that she does for the baby um, and as we work um, during the time that the baby's um, getting better do um do women worry about whether they've the baby's getting enough milk or if the baby's getting too much from breastfeeding because you you don't have a bottle to measure with so right how, how do you know that the baby's satiated right and this is a great question I um I'm glad that you asked that um there is many moms that are concerned about their milk production um, early on and um, um as mammals we are. Um, we are all having that period where the where the where her where the mom's body is making colostrum, and that colostrum um, for those first few days it's almost like a completion of their immunity. So no matter what the baby many times uh, is not going to be getting what we consider enough in those first few days. Um, they are born with the tiny stomachs and um, those frequent feedings are what they need to become independent and become um, a good feeder. Um, They have to learn to breathe, they have to learn to swallow um, and that's a process and that takes few days. So many times what I tell moms is that the baby is actually born, they come with their lunch. So the Mm -hmm. fatty tissue that they are born with, that's what gets them through the first couple of days before their milk increases in volume, and then they get that plentiful uh, meals. Gotcha. So it, they're not going to come out able to eat the way they're going to eat the whole time that you're breastfeeding. That may change. Right. Her body also needs to know that the baby survived the birth. So by that frequent feedings, by the, by the fact that the baby comes and nurses very frequently, that's what's... Um, help to realize for the for for the mom's body that the baby survived the um, the birth and it needs to put all the energy into milk production. Into milk production, interesting. Well, you have some efforts underway too to help prevent some problems with breastfeeding. Can you tell us about that? 
Right. We definitely want to try to fix problems um, before they before they before they happen. So um, so what we implemented is the skin on skin time, um, and so all of the moms after normal delivery um, have their babies placed on their skin um, immediately after birth, and they can stay there for at least an hour or at least until they complete the first feeding. So we're encouraging those reflexes to happen and the baby um, finds a, can find the breast and, um, and feed. Um, we also um, are implementing rooming in. So we are encouraging moms to, to keep their babies at their bedsides at least 23 out of 24 hours a day. Mm. Okay, um, and we, that helps with milk production, or what? What does that do? Um, we're trying to encourage moms to be with the babies at all times because the more they are together, the more the more they respond to each other, mm-hmm. um, and the the babies are more um, are feeding frequent more frequently and um, are usually more successful. So it helps them be in in sync together. Well, this has been a very interesting topic. I appreciate you being here to talk with me. My guest has been Anna Morochik, a nurse who offers lactation support at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. up next. We've heard about precision medicine in cancer care, but how does it work in psychiatry? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Alexander Nicolesco is a psychiatry professor at Indiana University who is board certified in psychiatry and neurology and who is an expert in precision medicine in psychiatry or precision psychiatry. He's visiting the Upstate campus to give a lecture on this topic and he agreed to speak with us. Thank you for being here. Good to be with you. Appreciate it. Well, I read your personal statement on the Indiana University website where you talk about wanting for the future to be able to diagnose and treat patients in an individual fashion based on their profile of genes, biomarkers, and quantitative phenotypic data. So can you explain what are biomarkers? Yeah. These are all sort of big words and technical terms, but it's really very simple. We are aiming in psychiatry to um, do things um, similarly to other uh, fields of medicine, like cardiology or cancer. So nowadays in those fields, you have the ability to get um, some genetic testing that can inform your treatment, uh, what would be the best drug to use, and um, you're able to assess their clinical um, symptoms in a more quantitative fashion. That's what we call the sort of phenotype or the phenomics. So we want to be more precise and uh, want to be able to um, personalize treatment and uh, target uh, whatever an individual has as opposed to broadly treating their diagnostic label. 
So biomarkers sometimes in those other fields you mentioned uh, is through blood tests and mm -hmm. things like yeah, that? Yeah, so, so uh, biomarkers are essentially uh, biological changes that can be measured. Um, in the case of the work that we're doing, uh, we are looking at um, molecules in the blood that indicate uh, which genes are more active or more silent. Uh, we're looking at gene expression levels. So then you have to know which genes go with which disorder, right? Right, right. That's a very good point. So there's a lot of discovery work and validation done prior to narrowing down the list of suspects and having a panel that's validated, uh, a small panel of markers. So uh, it takes years to uh, identify and then validate the biomarkers and have them uh, ready for uh, clinical use. Do we have some um, in the psychiatric realm that have already been identified and are pretty solidly linked to a particular gene? Or Yes, the, the short answer is yes. The long answer is uh, we're not as far along as, for example, cancer, in the sense that uh, while we're starting to have uh, well-validated and reproduced biomarkers in the research realm, we haven't yet made the leap to... Uh, having them actually be used in clinical practice and commercialized and so on. So those are things that uh, we're working very hard to make happen over the next uh, few years. So it sounds like we're just sort of on the cusp of that sort of exploding. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting time. It uh, sort of reminds me of um, some countries who sort of went from no, having no phones to uh, leapfrogging landlines and having cell phones. Wow, okay. <laughs> same psychiatry who went from having no tests to the possibility of having very modern and contemporary tests on par um, on the cutting edge. Well, I guess in all of medicine, but in psychiatry especially, um, I think patients are you know, have a develop a one-on-one -on -one relationship uh -huh. with the doctor-patient uh -huh. relationship, and they may already feel like this is very individualized to uh -huh. them to uh -huh. begin with, uh -huh. but this is sort of a whole new level, right? It, it adds a level of objectivity because uh, even for experienced clinicians, and I, I, I myself see patients, um, even for experienced clinicians, it... Um, it is very helpful to have something objective, to have something that can... Um, uh, inform your um, diagnosis in terms of levels of severity and to be able to track treatment in an objective fashion to see who's responding to medications or to therapy, to see how well they're responding, if you need to change treatment, and so on. Wow, sort of more of the science than the... You know. Yeah, so, um, you know, evidence-based medicine. <laughs> okay. So how would how would this work? Would... Everyone um, before, I mean, if you're going looking into the future a little bit, would everyone who needs an appointment with a psychiatrist first have like a genetic test done or a profile or? Yeah, so the way it might work is first you would uh, get a, a better, more comprehensive um, clinical assessment. And uh, nowadays these things can be done through a screen, right? So we've developed apps that... Um, capture a variety of symptoms. Some of them you can do, uh, you would do in the waiting room uh, while you wait to be seen by your clinician. Okay. Some of them you can have um, on the phone at home and you can track your symptoms and then bring them with you to the appointment so you can see how uh, your symptoms were in between appointments. So it starts with a more precise uh, clinical phenotypic assessments. After that, um, <clears throat> 
that you know the clinician would see you and then they would uh, perhaps order some um, lab tests uh, and then based on those um, lab tests they would initiate a treatment that would fit you and uh, you would come back um, in a few weeks for additional lab tests to see how well you're responding to the treatment. And by treatment, do we mean medication usually? Both medications and um, um, counseling, therapy, lifestyle changes. Um, there's interesting work that shows that uh, some of the biomarkers that we identified are not only targets of medications, but they also respond to um, lifestyle changes um, and to counseling. Huh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. That sort of validates those... Those interventions, yeah. yeah. There's there's nothing, I think, sort of mysterious about those interventions. It's just uh, they, they are good, solid um, um, interventions that uh, modify how your brain uh, works. So they are as powerful as medications and should be used in conjunction with medications. Interesting. Well, can, can you give me some examples of how a particular patient or a particular diagnosis may be treated now or a few uh -huh. years back yeah. um, as opposed to how it would be treated near near in the future. Yeah, well, even now, um, you know, um, it's not routine that you get a, um, a quantitative clinical assessment with uh, questionnaires or apps at the time of appointment and in between, uh, and especially tracking in between appointments, how somebody feels and thinks. So that information, we're not capturing it and can be done very easily nowadays. Then, you know, you see the patient, you may have your um, clinical expertise, you go through the sets of criteria for diagnosing somebody, you might have um, pattern recognition skills as an experienced clinician, but still, you don't have something objective that you can order a lab test that can, that can help in an objective fashion with your assessment. And then based on your clinical assessment, you start a medication or a combination of medications, but um, again, you're doing it uh, in a um, less than precise fashion because you're, you haven't maybe thoroughly diagnosed and subtyped the patients and you, ha you don't have a way of objectively following their response to treatment. Um, so there, there's a lot of room for improvement and um, it doesn't mean that nowadays we're not doing our best to treat patients and we're not having a lot of success. but. I think uh, we can um, expect even more success in the future as we implement some of these tools. <laughs> well, interesting. I've got some more questions, but first, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Alexander Nicolesco. Uh, he's a professor of psychiatry at Indiana University who's visiting Upstate for a lecture. So some aspects of this precision medicine and psychiatry are already part of your practice, certainly. Um, you're already seeing patients doing doing some of these things that you've described. Partially, with, uh, for, with example, the for example, for um, example, um, I'm probably more um, thorough or more sort of cognizant than the average clinician in terms of the need to use questionnaires and uh, apps for um, diagnosing patients, but. My clinical patients don't get, um, you know, sent to the lab for a biomarker lab test yet because these these things are not uh, yet, uh, you know, uh, FDA green lighted and available for use. Okay. Um, so the biomarker um, studies are done in patients that are enrolled in our large research studies and are available to those patients. They're not available to my clinical patients yet because, you know, as one, you know, as it's 
you know the right thing to do is to go through all the um, steps and um, rules and regulations uh, sure. that the FDA has to have something on the market. You can't just sort of think that because you have something scientifically good, immediately you should be offering right. it to patients. There are safeguards and necessary steps that we want to follow. So once, uh, assuming it is, but does become FDA approved, um, will this be good for patients? You think this will be uh, an improvement in the care they receive? I think it will be a significant improvement. Um, it will make their um, health care better. Uh, it will um, remove some of um, the stigma related to some of these disorders because it's not all in their head. These are biologically based disorders. It will be obvious uh, on uh, you know the laboratory tests. And um, in addition to that, I think this would lead to significant uh, cost savings for our healthcare system because um, it's it's very expensive to try different treatments. It's very um, expensive to hospitalize people because they were not properly treated. It didn't prevent acute episodes, and and frankly, it's you know it's very expensive for our general economy to have people who are not functioning at full capacity. Um, who are, um, you know, um, missing work, uh, who are not able to focus, and so on. And last but not least, it's very important for the patient's quality of life to have, uh, you know, their symptoms uh, managed, to be diagnosed properly earlier, and in the end, to have a lot of the uh, severe manifestations uh, preempted by proper treatment so they don't end up in acute episodes, they don't end up hospitalized, and don't end up uh, having major impact on their lives. It seems like it'll be good for physicians, too, uh, in managing their patients yeah. just to know what's working, like you've said. And I, I think so, Amber. I, uh, it would provi provide a layer of uh, uh, certainty in terms of uh, being able to uh, give the medications in more targeted fashion to see who's responding to them earlier. Um, and um, as I said, I, I don't think that um, this is something completely revolutionary. It's, it might be revolutionary in uh, mental health and psychiatry, but it's already being done in cancer. It's already being done in cardiology. And uh, we're just going to sort of follow similar paradigms and, um, you know, um, not reinvent the wheel. That mm. being said, you know, mental health um, disorders are very complex. The brain is probably the most complex organ in the body, so we have our work cut out for ourselves. Well, and also, are there fears that um, genetic profiles in the biomarker information, particularly in psychiatry, could end up being misused? Um, there's a Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act that was passed by Congress um, a couple of administrations ago. Um, I, I think that there are safeguards in place um, in terms of um, people um, um, being diagnosed with certain disorders. There's also, as you know, the whole um, HIPAA privacy um, um, structure in place. Um, that being said, you know, the you know, biomarkers and genetic testing and better diagnosis um, per se are, are uh, a positive if they are used in a constructive fashion. And uh, I suppose anything could be misused uh, if you think sort of in a paranoid uh, Orwellian way. But sure. um, I don't see that happening. <clears throat> well, how did you get involved in precision psychiatry? <clears throat> I 
think the brain is the ultimate frontier. So after I finished my uh, medical school and graduate school, I was contemplating what I want to do in the next uh, 30, 40 years. And um, a lot of the other fields that were exciting to me were already very mature. I was uh, uh, trained uh, scientifically as a cancer molecular biologist. And uh, uh, had I stayed in that field, I would have probably contributed to incremental progress, whereas um, going into um, psychiatry and trying to understand the brain was uh, sort of a wide open territory where I felt I could make a bigger contribution. <laughs> well, neat. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about this. My pleasure. Thank you, Amber. <laughs> My guest has been Dr. Alexander Nicolesco III, a psychiatry professor from Indiana University who is lecturing at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Ithaca poet Joyce Holmes McAllister uses her poems to capture a memory, specific in time and shape, yet so evocative of universal longings. Here are two poems to illustrate my meaning. The first is a sonnet, which pays tribute to the speaker's mother. Mother Seeds While peeling apples, you remove the core, the segment of the fruit which houses seeds, an inner life unsparked, unknown before. Then you remember her, her voice, the needs, related while red peelings filled the pan, held on her aproned lap, words wrapped in past adventures, childhood tales, some other man she knew before her marriage lot was cast. You learned to peel the apples, too, from her, and took her stories to the core of you. Both seated, knee to knee, you sought to spur the telling, hoard the words, small seeds that grew. She did not know her stories would seek light within the words her daughter yearned to write. The second poem, which is called Night Poem, will bring a smile to writers everywhere, What do we do when the muse visits at night? Night poem. I wonder what they were, those words I can't remember, formed in darkness an hour before dawn. No flowing pen, length of lead, small blank scrap of paper reached my hand to save them, nail them to the page. Instead, their sounds were muted, echoed under pillows, teasing under sheets, begging half-closed lids to read their ticker tape of words racing past dozing sight. But slumber stole each image, sent them back for paper, a hand that held a pen. It might have been a good poem, those words that searched me out, tried to chase me all the way back to troubled sleep.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, learn how nurses at Upstate are helping people with heart failure. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.